Welcome to Lunch Pell Sermons. My messages begin with the assumption that the Bible's teaching is simple. Love God, do good. With that simple message, the Spirit delivers divine haymakers that nudge us toward becoming better followers of Jesus. I hope this sermon helps you in living God's adventure for your life. We look today at Jonah chapter 3, and we are looking at, and God relented. So we have moved through the first two chapters of Jonah, and we've seen that story evolving. And now we're going to find Jonah going into the city of Nineveh, preaching there, and a great revival taking place as this entire city turns to God. Let me read our passage for us today. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days! And Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king of Nineveh and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. For this is the word of the Lord. First thing we want to look at today is that Jonah gets a second chance. And we talked about it two weeks ago. Jonah was told a very clear message. Go to the city of Nineveh. And you need to deliver a prophecy there. Jonah chose not to do that. Ended up trying to flee from God. And then we saw Jonah away by the big fish. And then Jonah in that belly of the fish finally changes his mind. Decides, all right, God, I guess I will do what you asked. But Jonah gets a second chance. That doesn't always come, does it? But in this case... God says, Jonah, I'm going to let you get one more go at this. And we'll see today that Jonah obeys, but at the very minimal. Jonah is not what we would think of as a good, solid employee who's going above and beyond. Jonah is the man who is doing as little as possible to still accomplish the task. In the midst of that, there is yet a great revival among the Ninevites. Let's read the first two verses here together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh 
and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah has experienced the mercy of God. And we've talked how the story of Jonah is a story of God's mercy. Sometimes we get distracted with the fish. It is a story of God's mercy. And here in chapter 3, the very first person who is experiencing the mercy of God is Jonah. Jonah, who once received this instruction and went the exact opposite direction, is now by the mercy of God receiving a second chance. And one of the interesting things that develops out of this is that Jonah now understands the mercy that he is going to proclaim. That is Jonah's job, his task, is to go tell the Ninevites that there is a God and they need to get right. Jonah's message is laced with the idea that this is a merciful and a graceful God who will give these people a second chance. But Jonah did not want to deliver that message originally because he viewed the people as unworthy of God's mercy. And we'll even see that in the next week as we look into chapter four, that Jonah continues to hold to this idea that these people were unworthy of God's mercy. But for this moment, for this time, Jonah finally comes to realize, huh, maybe these people can receive the same mercy that Jonah himself has received. Jonah understands what it's like to be unworthy. And Jonah understands the love of God that can overcome that. And now Jonah must go proclaim a message to the people who by Jonah's understandings are completely unworthy. But they too can experience the love of God. Kind of this lingering question that I have out of this passage, is Jonah a better messenger after his disobedience? Hmm. Has Jonah's disobedience allowed him to become a better messenger to the people. And certainly we see that Jonah never develops any compassion for the people of Nineveh. At least now he is obedient. Three, bellies, three days in the belly of the fish, Jonah has had his come to Jesus moment. And now through that process of disobedience and then reconciliation, Jonah is finally proclaiming in a powerful way, not that his words are powerful, but that God uses those words powerfully. The people need to come to God. All of this begins with Jonah's disobedience. Jonah, who has a prophecy laced with the mercy of God. Jonah selling something that he himself has already is Jonah a better messenger because of his disobedience? Certainly, Jonah has become an effective messenger through his disobedience. 
And I don't think we would ever think of disobedience as a way of serving God better, but we do find that God uses our failures to bring about good. God, perhaps the only one who's going to redeem the failures of your past. Those things that you've done that you wish you had. Those relationships that have been broken that you wish had not taken place. Those addictions that you've given into over and over and over again. Yet through those events, God can redeem those events and bring about good for those that will come through no other means. Because see, God uses our failures so that we can connect with people who likewise experience the same flaws. Right? Imagine if you're suffering from addiction. And someone comes up to you who hasn't had that same problem, who hasn't had that same challenge. And they offer encouraging words. And you might gratefully receive them, but you are thinking, you've never experienced the addiction like I have. You've never experienced that overwhelming desire to do this thing that you know is destructive. But if someone who has suffered from that same addiction, who's walked in your shoes as much as anybody can, comes with a message of encouragement, a message of hope, a message of God's power and God's redemptive work that can take place. And they say, you too can walk the same path of freedom that I have walked. To that person who has lived through your challenges, you might listen a little more. So what I want you to know now, is that through the redemptive power of God, your failures can become a source of strength. Only God can redeem your failures. Only God can look at those things that you've done wrong. Look at your moments of evil and say, I can take that and make something good from it. And so as you look and evaluate your past, often we feel guilt over the things we've done. We feel remorse. We lament the could have beens. But in the midst of that, I want you to know that God can use that moment for you to minister to someone else. Because some of our greatest ministry comes from our deepest hurts. Because when we talk to people from our deepest hurts, they know it's true. They know our heart that comes through that. And if we talk to people from our successes, so easy to sound a bit haughty, isn't it? Sound like, hey, they're talking down to me. Kind of just tune them out. Oh no. Your failures, God turns into your strength. We also want to know, because God can use your failures doesn't mean that we should pursue. I think of serving God as a long journey. And in this service to God, we're given a path. We're given the things that we need to carry. 
And there are some things that get added to that pack as we're going along on that journey. Things that are unavoidable. There's illness. There's loss of people. There's the human elements of life that are simply unavoidable, that are put into our pack, that makes it hard for us to move forward. And our failures are like that as well. They're rocks we put into our pack that do not help us on that journey of lifelong service to God. They slow us down. They keep us from getting to the fullness that God has available to us. And certainly all of us, as we look on our lifelong journey of serving God, we've dumped a few rocks in our bag. That doesn't mean we should keep dumping them. No. God certainly can use our failures. But God can also use us in a different way if we can avoid those pitfalls. Who know, wherever that finds you, whether you feel like your, your pack is full of junk you put in there, or maybe you've been able to avoid filling that pack. Wherever you are on that journey, I just want you to keep looking forward. Just keep looking forward. Because if we start looking backward, bad things happen. So if our pack is full of junk, full of rocks we put in there and we're looking back, it's guilt, it's lament, it's sorrow for the things that could have been that will never be. That's not the life God calls us to. God calls us to a forward thinking life, a life of freedom and hope and joy. We still get that. Maybe, maybe you haven't filled your pack and you start looking over your shoulder and you know what you tend to see? You're like, look, I'm looking pretty good. I didn't fill my pack like so and so and so and so. <laughs> and right there, right? <laughs> that's you filling your pack right then at that moment. Because in your pride and arrogance, you have somehow thought yourself better than those around you. Not helpful. So wherever life finds you, we're going forward. We're going forward with the joy and hope and the power of Jesus Christ working through us that God allows. Next thing we want to look at is we are going to look at Jonah's pouty message. <laughs> pouty. That is the best word I could think of to describe it. If you don't know the word pouty, now you do. I actually put it in on one of the things and, you know, it underlined it because it said it was misspelled. I was like, I really think that is a word, right? Like, am I spelling that right? Oh, yeah, pouty is a word. If you don't know what it is, by the end, you're going to be, that's Jonah, that's pouty, and I know what it is. Maybe, yeah, we'll see. You'll see. You'll see. You'll see. So Jonah, if I was to kind of describe the Jonah that we see, is that Jonah kind of resembles, I almost hate to say it. There's going to be like people in here who say, oh, that's kind of me. Or, but we, it, it's like a, a teenager sometimes. So no offense to the younger people who are here or who are hearing this. I'm sure you're the exception to this rule. Um, maybe those of us who are past our teenage years might look back and reflect and say, oh, I remember a few of those moments in my, my life. So Jonah's a little bit like kind of a, a, a pouty teen, right? Who's been given instructions, but has no real desire to follow the instructions. 
So those instructions are followed at the absolute minimum level. So Jonah, it's kind of like the teenager, right? Who gets the instructions from their parent. I need you to clean the kitchen and put dishes away. Now this teenager doesn't want to clean the kitchen and put dishes away. They've got other more important things to do with their life. But they know they need to obey their parents. And so they do their little job and their little task. And then that parent comes home and they like see the clean kitchen and the clean countertops. And they're like, oh, I'm a brilliant parent. I'm, my kids aren't like those other kids. I'm fantastic. And then the parent opens the cupboard and there in the cupboard, there it's filled with dirty dishes. Multiple meals still piled on them. So the parent calls the teenager, what have you done? I told you to clean the dishes. I mean, clean the kitchen and put the dishes away. Which the teenager responds, I did exactly. Look, doesn't the kitchen look clean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I put the dishes away. But you didn't clean the dishes before you put them away. You didn't say to clean the dishes before I put them away. This is Jonah. Jo that, this, is, this is Jonah. That is who Jonah is. Let's look at Jonah's message to the people. Let's read this together. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah's message is astonishingly brief. In the Hebrew, his message is four words. So for efficiency's sake, Jonah is a check mark. Uh, for anything beyond efficiency, Jonah has seemed to come up short. So Jonah's message is 40 days Nineveh overthrown. And there's no eloquence to this. There's no imagery. There's no concern that's brought in. So we look at other prophecies in the Bible, and there's this beautiful language, this poetic announcements. There's intertwining of imagery and concern and love and understanding of God and seeing people. And then we have Jonah, who uses four words, 40 days, Nineveh over. If we were to grade Jonah on this, I'm giving him a D minus. D minus. The only reason he's not failing is because he did do what God said, but he did it with the absolute least amount of effort possible. Yet, despite Jonah's poor effort, people of Nineveh are turning to God. The people of Nineveh are finding God, and there is a great revival that takes place in this land. And as I mentioned before, prophets in the Bible are notoriously not successful in getting people to turn to God. This is just kind of one of the things they talk about with prophets. Prophets come, tell people about God, people ignore them. Oh, prophets come, people ignore them. 
And it's just this repeating pattern over and over and over again, except for Jonah. And how many people are we talking about here? We'll learn from the next chapter that Nineveh is described as a city with 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right hand. Now, exactly what that expression means is a little bit, you know, not exactly clear. But we're talking about minimum of 120,000 people. That's a lot of people turning to God. Let's read about the Ninevites' response. Let's read this together. The Ninevites believed God. The fast was both plain, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. People hear the message, turn to God, begin changing their life, begin changing what they're doing, begin the outward signs of remorse and repentance in the hope that God might yet spare them. Question that's kind of lingering in this is why is Jonah's message so it's certainly not Jonah, and it's certainly not his message that is making this great turning to God to take place. One of the things that we do see in this chapter is that the Ninevites have an understanding of God's characteristics. So some of the things that we see the Ninevites understanding here in chapter 3 is they understand that God listens because they have this idea that they can call on God and God would hear them, right? And a God who listens means there's a God out there. There's some sort of divine being to whom is listening to us. So they have this notion of God. They also have this idea that this God is opposed to evil and violence. Because elsewhere in this passage, they talk about how they must give up these things. Well, they know a God is opposed to evil and violence. They know God is a God of fierce anger. But with that fierce anger, there's a God who relents. There is a God of compassion. A key aspect that they pick up and their understanding of God. One of the things that we find, let's, let's actually, we're going to take a moment and we're going to read this so we can see their understanding of God. Let's read this together. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This is their understanding of God. So how did they come to this knowledge? See, these are not people who are part of this community of faith. Right? And that, in fact, that's kind of the whole background to this story. So this isn't the Israelite community to whom prophets have been sent, to whom the law has been provided, to whom God said, I'm working with this group of people and I'm blessing the whole world through this particular group. So this isn't the group. This is part of kind of the extended blessing group. So how did they know about this? So one of these like clues that's kind of running through the text. So this isn't an absolute thing. So as I come and tell you, this isn't like certainly there, but there is a clue. 
there is a clue. And in this clue, it's how they refer to God compared to how Jonah refers to God. So in the book of Jonah, Jonah always refers to the Lord. So in our Bibles, that's Lord with capital letters, four capital letters. And that is the name of God. So that's the name of God that Moses receives at the burning bush. And Moses is like, who should I say is sending us? Like, who, who are you? And that is where God reveals God's name to Moses. And then Moses tells to the people, and for this covenant people, these people who are in relationship with God, they have the personal name referring to the Lord. So anytime in your Bible you see the word Lord, it's in your Old Testament. Anytime you see the word Lord with four capital letters, that's actually the name of God. And it's translated as Lord because of this notion that saying God's name is um, a concern for reverence. And so the title Lord is put in place. But this is the God to whom Jonah refers to a very personal nature of God. The Ninevites, however, never refer to the Lord. They always refer to God. They have a different relationship with God. They don't have this personal relationship with God. They don't have this history with God that dates back hundreds of years. They don't have this written law from God that's designed to come and show them. They don't have a history of prophets who have come. And pointed them towards God. But they do understand the qualities of God. They do understand that God listens. They do understand that God is opposed to violence and anger. And they do understand this is a God of compassion. How do they come to this knowledge? Scriptures help us out. In the book of Romans, among other places. There's this idea put before us that people are built with the natural understanding of God's characteristics. Other parts of the Bible talks about how people can look out into the created realm, look out into nature and be aware of a God, of some sort of supreme being, a creator who has put all this in place. People are aware of God. They may not have that personal aspect that Jonah has. They have an awareness of who God is. Let me read for you, coming out of Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. And you're going to see this idea that all people have an understanding of God. What may be known about God is plain to people. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, in the world, God's invisible qualities, his power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In theological terms, we would refer to this as general revelation. It is the aspect of God that is known to all people. The aspect of God that all people 
have available to them. A very biblical idea is that there is an innate understanding of God in every living person. And the very created realm screams out God's existence. And the book of Romans would tell you that people are without excuse. But one of the things we also see is that, especially as we look here in the story of Jonah, people are not equipped with the specifics of God, with the understandings of God that we see that come from the scriptures. People are not equipped that salvation comes through Jesus Christ and the sacrificial death of Jesus on a cross. Sure, they might understand that God loves them and there is a concern for God. They don't know the specifics. And what we find Jonah in this passage doing unlocking their knowledge of God so that the spirit of God that has been working through them now makes them ready to step forward in their commitment. It's a bit like this. We can imagine that the spirit of God has been working through the city of Nineveh. And it's built up this pressure. It's kind of like this water has come and has been blocked up by this dam. And the pressure is built up, but it, there's nowhere to go. And then Jonah comes along. Jonah comes along with that little last piece that's needed. Jonah comes along with the little key. Going to put into the door of the dam and just take a little twist. 40 days. Nineveh overthrown. That little tiny message is that twisting of that key. The door opens and the floodgates go. It would seem that God is at work in the city of Nineveh long before Jonah ever shows up. God just needed someone to be obedient, get over there, As we think of life around us. I've said it before and I will certainly say it again after today. But I'll say it now. I believe God is at work in the lives around us. I believe God is touching lives, changing hearts, moving people towards a better understanding of who God is. I believe people have a spiritual emptiness within them that they are eager to fill. And they are simply looking for someone who will be as obedient as Jonah. Which isn't to say fantastic, amazing, but just obedient enough to go and say, Jesus might be your answer. That's it. That's the key. That's what I was looking for. God's been at work in my life for so long. And the moment you said Jesus, knew. That's what I've been looking for. So as we think of life around us, what does life look like for this church? That we have many empty pews that we can fill up. And even when COVID, when we're sitting a little bit far apart from each other, we still got some empty room. And at some point, not too long in the future, 
We're going to be able to smush all together again as much as you feel comfortable smushing next to people. I believe God's got lives, families that are looking to fill this place. We just need to get that key out there. Little obedience. Little obedience. God's already at work. God's done the hard work. We're just going to need to take that last little bit of effort and finish up. And finally, our story ends. God relented. Just as these Ninevites knew God might, just as Jonah knew God would, God turned back his fierce anger. And let's read this uh, last uh, verse from chapter 3 together. When God saw what they did, and now they turned from their evil way, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Of course, God relented. Because just as Jonah discovered, we mentioned earlier, the God of second chances. God of second chances. So maybe in your own life, what you need. You are ready for a God of second chances. We don't always get them, right? We don't know how many chances are out there waiting for us. But if you're hearing my words today, I, it's your second chance if that's what you needed. And maybe you're one of those people, you're like, man, I'm on my 58th chance. Well, then, I don't know if 59 is coming, so you better make good on 58. God's going to give us a chance. God's giving you a chance today. Because God relents. And God turns back. When God sees your remorse, the compassion of God flows through. Final little ending to our story on Jonah here in this chapter. We've talked how Jonah did not want the people of Nineveh to find God. He did not want them to experience God's mercy. And we see how Jonah comes in with this prophecy. Forty days, Nineveh overthrown. In Jonah's heart, Jonah's hoping right, that the destruction awaits. He wants this prophecy to come true. He wants them to be overthrown. And in a last little bit of biblical humor, Jonah's prophecy was absolutely true. Forty days, Nineveh overthrown. Because you see that word overthrown, it's also used in the scripture to describe people who turn around and are then following God. It's the idea of something being completely flipped over or completely turned around, which is exactly what the people of Nineveh did, didn't they? See, Jonah used the word overthrown with the idea of your city's prospering and destruction comes. But God says, hey, Jonah, you're a prophet. Your prophecy's coming true. Instead of destruction, it's people walking in their own path of destruction, of sin, turning to God and following God. Jonah, man, prophecy's coming true. People turning to God. He should be one happy man, right? His life is a success. Jonah's resume is like solid. Successful prophet of God. Prophecy's coming true. Ah, well, we'll look, look at Jonah next week. You're welcome to read ahead. 
Short chapters, you'll get to the story fast, and you'll see what we will find. For us today, though, we leave today remembering the God of second chances. Let us do well in receiving those. Let me pray for us this morning. Thanks for listening to Lunch Pell Sermons. Now it's time to put these words into action and go live our adventure. Let's love God and do good.